hard to believe that we are at the end of our sermon series on this book of Colossians. Over the last three and a half years that I have been uh, preaching here, we have gone through the books of Galatians, we have gone through the book of Matthew, and now we have finished the book of Colossians, and of course with various, maybe a little series or little sermons in between. And I don't know how you feel when we finish a book of the Bible, if it means anything to you at all, but for me, it feels like we've completed a long journey where we've just kind of walked every step of the way through these books of the Bibles. We have ascended uh, the peaks of the book. We have descended into the valleys of the books together. And I hope and pray that God has used this book of Colossians in your life. We've been in this book since May. May 14th, I think, was the first time that we opened the book of Colossians together. And just to give you a little bit of a heads up in terms of where we're going next, we're going to be looking at, uh, for the next five weeks, uh, it is, uh, this month marks the 500th anniversary of the Protestant Reformation. And so for the next five weeks, we're going to be looking at the five solas of the Reformation. And you might, that might not sound all that exciting to you. You're like, what in the world is he going to be talking? Is it, you know, going to be a lecture? Is this going to be dry? What is it going to be? But we are going to do what we usually do, take passages, go through them, see what God has for us within those passages. But the five solas born from the Reformation, at least battle cries, if you will, when we look back at that period of time, the five things, if you want to distill that period, uh, you could distill it into these five things. Scripture alone. Grace alone, faith alone, Christ alone, for the glory of God alone. And so for the next five weeks, that is where we will be looking. But this morning, our goal is to finish the book of Colossians. These verses at the end of the book of Colossians, we often read through them quickly, don't we, when we're in our Bible reading. We read through Colossians, we see all the beauty that is there, and then we kind of come to the end and it says, maybe you have a little heading that says, final greetings, and it goes through you know, all of these names, and you're just kind of like, well, who really cares about all these names? None of that really matters anyway. In fact, um, I don't know how many of you go on Twitter. In fact, I guarantee about most of you don't go on to Twitter, but I put on to Twitter this last, a couple weeks ago, I said, you know, just kind of, how would you, how would you finish the book of Colossians? You pastor friends or friends, would you, would you preach the this last part, and one of my friends said, skip it, but I'm not going to skip it. We're going to look at these verses together. Um, and, and as I was debating on if we would delve deeply into this greeting, and if we, or if we were going to conclude last week with Colossians, I couldn't help but notice some wonderful truths within these verses. There is richness within these verses. That's all. That really shouldn't surprise us, should it? That any time we come to God's Word, no matter where we fall within the Bible, whether it's in the middle of Leviticus and it's talking about purifications and blood and all these various kinds of things, there is meaning there. There is intent there from God. And so as we come to these, this list of names, maybe it looks like to us now, uh, I hope and pray that we get something from these. I, I've heard that back in the olden days, far before I was born, before technology really swooped in, people would write these things called letters. And as they would write these letters, they would maybe have a particular subject. And they would write paragraph after paragraph of something that they wanted to tell somebody about. But before uh, phones and before the internet and before all of the technology of the last 100 years or so, they would maybe write at the end short statements. So there was a point to the letter. This is what I want you to know. But then at the end, it's, and I'm doing well. Or so-and-so is, is, is past uh, this certain sickness, or so-and-so received a job offer, and just kind of short uh, statements at the end, letting other people know about what was going on at home and what was going on within the town. 
And although we don't write long final greetings like this, and we don't even often write letters to each other anymore, we certainly do find importance within the last couple words of a letter, don't we? That when somebody writes us a letter, if we do ever get one of those, is it ended by sincerely? Is it a little more formal? Sincerely, so-and-so. Or is there a little more affection behind it, where we say, yours truly, or love, and so on. I can remember the notes that Bethany would send me through our little college mail system on little index cards. And I would pour over every word until coming to the end where maybe I would find before her name, before we had said the three heavy words to each other, before we said that we loved each other, there would maybe be a heart next to her name. But what did that heart mean? Did that heart mean that she loved me? Like, loved me, loved me? Or did that mean that she loved me like a Christian brother? That's the worst thing. If you're a Christian guy and a Christian girl that you're interested in, I love you like a brother. That is the worst thing to hear. But I would pour over that. What, what does that heart mean? Does she love me? So we, we do find intent within the last couple words of a letter, don't we? And there is intent within these words as well. So in this clu- conclusion of Colossians, Paul brings up a bunch of names and a bunch of various ministries or gifts that, that they had, that they participated in together with Paul. And so I want to point out these gifts and ministries to you, hopefully to show you how desperately, even what we see within these verses, is needed in our church, in Windsor Christian Fellowship, here right now. In other words, what do kingdom workers do? What do people who work within the kingdom of God, what do we do? And several characteristics are seen within this passage, and I'll give them to you up front. Kingdom work requires faithfulness. Kingdom work requires faithfulness. The second thing we're going to see is that kingdom work requires cooperation. And then kingdom work requires service. Look with me at verse 7. Tychicus will tell you all about my activities. He is a beloved brother and faithful minister and fellow servant in the Lord. I have sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are and that he may encourage your hearts. And with him, Onesimus, our faithful and beloved brother, who is one of you, they will tell you everything that has taken place here. I I spoke of these two men a couple of sermons ago when we looked at that concept of slavery within the Bible because Onesimus here is a slave. But these two men were sent by Paul from Rome and they were carrying the letters to Colossae, they were carrying the letter to Philemon, and they were carrying the letter to Ephesus, and what a task they would have had. Can you imagine being those men and delivering the word of God? The the first letters, these letters that we have within the New Testament, they were the first ones to carry these. What a responsibility that would have been. But do you notice what Paul calls Onesimus, and do you notice the same words he uses for Tychicus? He calls them beloved, and he calls them faithful. He uses the same words to describe both men. These were two men who were on various spectrums in terms of their own sanctification. Two men who were on various sides in their own spiritual journey and where they were with Christ and the relationship that they had at that moment in time. Tychicus, Paul refers to him as a faithful minister. And so it seems as though Tychicus had some sort of formal interaction with the church. He had some sort of formal ministry or formal office. But then on the other side, you have Onesimus. And who was Onesimus? Onesimus was a slave. So, Tychicus is faithful and he is beloved. Onesimus the slave is faithful and beloved. Philemon owned Onesimus. And, 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 and so Onesimus goes and he is presented to Philemon now, not just as a slave, but as a faithful brother and a beloved 
brother, a Paul. I mean, you think of the diversity within the body of Christ in this first century. You have that faithful servant of Christ in Tychicus. You have a faithful new Christian slave in Onesimus. Yet both of these men are beloved by Paul. Both of these men are useful for Paul in ministry. And they were both faithful despite the levels, the various levels that they were at. As a minister and as someone faithful and beloved by Paul, Tychicus was not only going to have to deliver letters, but he was going to have to deliver Onesimus to his slave owner, wasn't he? And you think of the pastoral ability and the skill that Tychicus would have had to have to navigate that kind of a sticky situation to bring a slave back to a Christian brother and say, here he is, but accept him as much more than what you once had him as. What a, what a pastoral situation that would have had to be for Tychicus to handle. Onesimus is a new Christian. Again, apparently saved under Paul's ministry in Rome, but he's still a slave by law. He is still owned by Philemon. And Onesimus, even opposite of Tychicus, but in the right way, is mature. And he's willing to submit himself to the rule of law, willing to submit himself to Philemon. And so you consider even these two men, despite, despite how different they really were, and despite being on different planes in their sanctification, and despite the sticky situation that they were about to be in with Philemon, Paul calls them both beloved and faithful. And I think the application is, is pretty simple. That all of us are on various planes in terms of what we understand about the Lord and, and our walk with the Lord and, 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 and where He has directed and guided us within our lives. All of us are in various places. But the truth is that we are all still to be faithful regardless of where we are. That we're all called to faithfulness like Tychicus and like Onesimus. But you know, we also have an example, a negative example, concerning faithlessness. A man who was faithful for quite some time with Paul, who served with Paul, who has had his name mentioned in the Bible several times, and you find him in verse 14. His name is Demas. Of Demas in 2 Timothy, which was very likely Paul's last letter, Paul says this about him. For Demas, in love with this present world has deserted me. The once important servant, a fellow kingdom worker with Paul, a man who was considered faithful, who had proven himself in the end, he proves himself not to be faithful. Demas is an example of what James says in his letter. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. And although Demas had been faithful for years and years, who knows, maybe a decade or two, in the end, he proved that he was not genuinely faithful. And because of his love for the world, he proved himself to be a friend of the world and thus proved himself to be an enemy of God. Demas had made friends with the world. He loved the present world. And because of that world, he left the kingdom. His love for the world shifted his faithfulness from God's kingdom to the kingdom of the earth. And I know that all of you can think of faithful ministers and and people, Christians within your life, like a Tychicus and like an Onesimus that God has used tremendously in your life. Can you not think of people that God has used to stir you and and bring you along in the faith? Men and women who were absolutely invaluable to your own spiritual growth, who helped you on your journeys as pilgrims? I can think of men in my life that in the providence of God have helped me in various seasons of my life. I can think of when I was a teenager and, and, and my youth pastor was just absolutely indispensable to me. 
or my early 20s even, where my father-in-law became a huge figure in helping me to understand God's word and to grow in the faith, or various pastors and, and friends who have helped me in various seasons of my life. And I know that all of you can think of people as well who have guided you and impacted you in such ways, and you joyfully recognize them as faithful ones that God has used within your life. But I know you can also think of Demases. You can also think of those who have left the faith, who maybe did present themselves as faithful and had ministered and that maybe were even used in your life, but in the end, they deserted the Lord, they deserted the ministry and traded faithfulness to God, to faithfulness for the world. And the application here, are you faithful to the Lord? Are you building a legacy of faithfulness to Christ? Do you press on to be faithful? Do you follow examples of those who have gone before you? Those where Paul says, imitate me as I imitate Christ. Do you imitate those who imitate the Lord Jesus? And do you heed the warning that when you find someone who has been faithless, who has abandoned the Lord, do you heed that as a warning to yourself? That except for the grace of God, we would all be in such a position? No matter where you are in your Christian walk, no matter how long you've been a Christian, You are called to live a life of faithfulness. Whether you're a new Christian like Onesimus, a seasoned Christian like Tychicus, you are called to be faithful. You see, we only have so much time within the kingdom of God, don't we? We, On this earth. We only have so much time to work in the vineyard. There is not uh, an infinity of time on this earth. We all know that life is a breath. It's a mist. It just goes. And so we are called to be faithful while the Lord has us here. Are you faithful in the work of the kingdom? The second thing I want to show you from this text is that kingdom work not only requires faithfulness, but it requires cooperation. And this is really what you see within the whole text, isn't it? If you were to read through this whole text, that is one of the obvious things that comes out from it. That it requires cooperation to work within the kingdom of God. So you have the examples of Tychicus and Onesimus who cooperate in ministry with Paul and they deliver the letters. You have Aristarchus, Mark, and Justice, all Jewish men. They are called fellow workers in the kingdom and they comfort Paul, it says. Epaphras, who is likely the pastor of this church, he prays and he works hard for the people. Uh, he mentions Luke here, who specifically he designates him as the, the physician. So he and, and Luke writes a lot concerning the history. Uh, you look at the book of Acts, it's written by Luke, uh, and, and you see all of the example of, of cooperative ministry there. No doubt uh, Luke offers his uh, services as a physician to those who are ill. And this woman, you see a, a woman's name in verse 15, her name is Nympha, and she opened her house to the church so that they could have gatherings there. So she opened her home so that there could be a, 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 a setting for the church to meet. And then, of course, you have the Apostle Paul, who is doing teaching and letter writing and so forth. In other words, what you see here is teamwork. I mean, you've heard teamwork makes the dream work, right? But teamwork makes the ministry work in the power of the Holy Spirit. And so Paul is not into solo ministry. He is not into doing everything himself. The ministry of Paul could not be accomplished by himself. He could not have done these things. He could not even have delivered these letters because he was in prison in Rome. He needed the help of his friends in ministry. Wasn't it the Beatles that sang, getting by with a little help from my friends? Something like that. But that's exactly what we have. It's somewhat troubling when you hear of a church that is kind of labeled as, oh, that's Pastor so-and-so's church. Or that's Pastor Brandon's church. As though the pastor is the one who is doing all the ministry. As though the pastor is the one who is doing all of the work. The church, by the way, does not belong to the pastor or the pastors. The church belongs to Jesus. 
Nor does the church serve the pastor. The church serves Jesus. Are we clear on that? That you are not my servants? I know you probably all know that. But the church serves Jesus. The church does not exist for the pastors. The pastors and the church. We exist for the Lord Jesus together. And so the ministries that go on within the churches, it does not happen by the elders or the pastor alone. The ministry of the church is just that. It is the ministry of the people who make up the church in cooperation with one another. This is our ministry. Winter Christian Fellowship is our church. It is our ministry to use and and, and to be a part of for the glory of God. In fact, I've made this argument for you before, but I think it could be argued that pastors leave the ministry when they become a pastor. Uh, This is what Paul says in Ephesians 4. He says, And he gave the apostles, the prophets, evangelists, the pastor, teachers, to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. So in some sense, when when somebody becomes a pastor, they then kind of step back a little bit in order to help others and to teach others to do the work of the ministry. And so who does the ministry belong to? It belongs to you. The ministry belongs to you. You're to be raised up. You're to be guided into the ministry. You're to be assisted and grown in these things. We've talked about faithfulness in ministry already, but let me ask you, do you cooperate with one another in ministry? Do you cooperate here as part of our church family within the ministry? Are you part of the team here to work together to do this work? I quote this a lot for you, and I I think it's a very uh, accurate statement. But the 20% of the people do 80% of the work in churches. And that's kind of one that you you always see out there, but I think it's true. 20% of the people do 80% of the work. But friends, if we're going to be a biblical church, we're going to have a ministry that is a every-member ministry where all of us have a part to play, that God has given all of you various giftedness and various abilities that He hasn't given me and that hasn't given Mike or leadership or anything, that He has given all of you and all of you thus play a part. And a simple question to diagnose whether you're playing a role here is to simply ask yourself, where am I serving? Where am I serving? If nothing comes to mind, then there's got to be a place. There's got to be a place for you to serve, to use your gifts that God has given you. Why don't you turn over to 1 Corinthians chapter 12? I use this example. I think it's such a vital, important example for us to look at again. 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Here Paul he uses this great analogy of the body and how the body is made up of different parts. But I want to remind you of his example. And look beginning in in, in 1 Corinthians 12 and verse 14. For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. Does that not just prove the point? So, So you stop there for just a second. The body consists not of one. It's not one part of the body that runs the show. It's the entire body working in concert and cooperation with itself. So the body does not consist of one member, but of many. Verse 15, if the foot should say, because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the sense of hearing be? If the whole body were an ear, where would the sense of smell? But as it is, God arranged the members of the body, each one of them as he chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, 
nor again of the head to the feet. I have no need of you. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be the weaker are indispensable. And on those parts of the body that we think less honorable, we bestow the greater honor. And our unpresentable parts are treated with greater modesty, which our more presentable parts do not require. But God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. Now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. So the body of Christ works in cooperation together in order to do the work of the ministry. And he even throws in the kinds of excuses that we like to give, doesn't he? He gives the kinds of excuses in terms of superiority and inferiority. So, for instance, well, I'm not a hand or a foot. I'm really not that important, so I don't really have much of a part to play. So that sense of feeling inferior, like I'm not good enough, or I'm not spiritual enough, or I don't have what it takes. But then there's the the opposite side and that feeling of superiority. That the eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. There's never to be a superior mindset within the church family. How ridiculous would it be for you to wake up tomorrow morning and to look at your hand and say, oh, I don't need you anymore and lop it off and throw it away. That would be absolutely ridiculous. Just because you may have other parts of the body that don't totally require a hand, you would never say, I have no need of you as a hand. And so it is with the body of Christ. Like our physical bodies, when it's working appropriately, it's going to be in cooperation with itself. I, I don't know what it is, but I've start, my elbow is starting to drive me nuts. Um, uh, my unofficial doctor, Chris, he says it's tennis elbow. And so when I wake up in the morning, that's the first thing that I feel. I wake up in the morning and the first thing I feel is pain in my elbow. And I know a lot of you wake up with pain as well, and that's just an elbow. But even so, it's the first thing I think about. It's the first thing I start directing my attention to, to try to work that out a little bit and make it not hurt so much. And so it would be ridiculous to look at a part of our body and say, well, I don't really need my elbow anyway. I'll just chop it off and get rid of it. No, we are the body of Christ. We are together. We all have a part to play. Everyone playing his or her part in the ministry. And when you look at the text, Colossians 4, which by the way, you can turn back there, these men and women, they are working together. As a cohesive group of believers, there aren't feelings of inferiority or superiority. Nobody is saying, well, I, I want to be an apostle. So I want to be like Paul. I want to do the letter. No, no one's saying that. It's simply a cohesive group, a cohesive bunch that is working together. Solo ministry is far less effective than a ministry of a bunch. The Apostle Paul would have had a much smaller ministry had it not been for all of those with him. And the same is true for our church. Brothers and sisters, if you want to see the ministry of Windsor Christian Fellowship grow and deepen and see more people saved within our community and so forth, we need more people involved. We need the holes within our church to be filled in by various people serving within our church. To use your giftedness to minister to the people of God who worship here. And so kingdom kingdom work requires faithfulness. Kingdom work requires cooperation. Third thing I want you to know is that kingdom work requires service. And of course, this is all very closely connected. But I want you to see various ways of service that that these people uh, participated in that have eternal ramifications. And you see at least four. Look at your text, Colossians 4. Look at verse 8. He quickly says that, or talks about encouragement. So fellow servants encourage one another. Verse 11, he 
uh, mentions fellow servants comfort one another. Verse 12, fellow servants pray for one another. Verse 16, fellow servants uh, read God's word with one another. Certainly all of these uh, main headings are related to one another, that we're faithful, that we cooperate together, and that we participate in service together, all very interconnected. But when the rubber meets the road, what does it look like? What does it look like within the church family? What are some of the areas in which we can serve one another and even have task items as we leave uh, worship this morning? What are some of the things that we can do for one another? Look again in verse 8. He says, I have sent him, Tychicus, to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are and that he may encourage your hearts. Paul was concerned that the Colossians would be encouraged down deep into their hearts. Again, like we saw last week, Paul didn't ask for prayer for himself and for his own comforts. And here he is remaining concerned for other people in that he wants the Colossians and he wants you to be encouraged down into the depths of your heart, even though he is the one in prison. Brothers and sisters, this is one of the ways in which we can serve one another simply by being an encouragement to each other. And I wonder how many of us, how many of those who make up our fellowship are discouraged so often in ministry simply because there is a lack of encouragement in the ministry? How many of you moms are discouraged or dads are discouraged from day to day as you minister and raise your kids? And how often do you get encouragement as a parent from another Christian parent or someone who has been there? How often does that happen? How often does somebody just come up and say, I love you, how can I help you? Can I wash the kids for you? Can I just encourage you toward the Lord as you seek to raise your kids toward the Lord? How how often does that happen? How many of you encourage each other as you minister side by side here at the church? Here in ministry, doing various things. You know, it's a remarkable thing that even something like when we were doing the siding on that building and we were just nailing siding onto a wall and just some of the connectedness that was happening. And I know what happens is that those who sit in this corner of the room don't know the people that sit back there and and vice versa. But then you start nailing in vinyl together and all of a sudden you start to know each other. You start to get involved with one another and you're serving next to each other. And what an amazing thing that happens as you're doing that and the Lord just starts uh, speaking through each other and you start encouraging one another. So how many of you do this? How many of you seek to minister encouragement to one another? I'm not sure if if you've seen them, but I love watching the videos um, after the Patriots win when they get back to the locker room after a football game. Uh, they, so they've just won the game. The players, they, they start going around. Usually the camera gets right on Brady, and Brady comes in. He starts giving everyone high fives and all that, give each other hugs. and It's good play, man. Good, good, good third down conversion over here, or good catch in the end zone on, in that back corner. And, and all of these different things are encouraging one another, aren't they? They're, they're in the trenches together. And once they come out of those trenches, the first thing that they want to do is say, good job. And although they're glorying in themselves, I understand that the illustration breaks down. They're glorying in themselves and, and we glory in them in the wrong ways. But there's certainly in which we can encourage one another toward Jesus. Where God gets the glory. Where He is our aim. And we just encourage one another toward the Lord. We used to have a chancellor at our college. And he used to say that every Christian needs three kinds of people in their life. Every Christian needs three kinds of people in their life. Every Christian needs a Paul in their life. They need a mentor. They need somebody to teach them about the Lord. They need somebody to direct them. But then every Christian needs a Timothy in their life. They need somebody to funnel information into, knowledge of the Lord. They need somebody to to help and to advise and to counsel. 
And so we all need a Paul, somebody to mentor us. We all need a Timothy, somebody to mentor. And then we all need a Barnabas. Remember Barnabas? We all need somebody to come alongside us like Barnabas came alongside Paul and he encouraged him in the ministry. We find Barnabas in Acts chapter 4 and his name literally means son of encouragement. And this is something that we see him do. He encourages people. In fact, in Acts 11, we see that he encouraged the entire church of Antioch to be resolved and to stay true to the Lord. And this is what a true encourager does. And if we have that kind of model where all of us have a Paul and all of us have a Timothy and all of us have a Barnabas, there is going to be a wonderful ministry of encouragement within our church. But this is what a true encourager does. He acts like a Barnabas and he goes alongside of people. He doesn't want to stroke somebody's ego. That's never the point. But they encourage somebody toward something. Namely, they encourage somebody toward Jesus to be resolved in the Lord, to remain faithful, to stay cooperative in ministry and committed to the King. The next idea here is closely connected to that of encouragement, uh, but has a little different form. But you find it in verse 11. Notice there in the second part of the verse. These are the men, only men of the circumcision among my fellow workers for the kingdom of God, and they have been a comfort to me. The Apostle Paul, this man that we kind of imagine as, you know, I imagine him as like really tall and walks like in strength, even though history tells us that he was kind of a weak guy, apparently. But I just imagine him walking in confidence into these cities and towns and proclaiming the gospel and so forth. But even Paul himself needs encouragement. He needs comfort. He needs comfort from his fellow brothers in the Lord. And friends, I know that you are not going to find the comfort that you need from your unsaved family and friends. You are only going to find it from those in the Lord who understand the Lord, who maybe has been where you have been and can put your trials and difficulties in the context of the Christian walk. This is what kingdom workers do. They comfort one another. They encourage each other. They comfort one another. And they pray for one another. Notice verse 12. Epaphras, this pastor, he, he is, is one of you. He's a servant of Christ Jesus. He greets you. He's always struggling on your behalf in prayers that you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. Do you see how he prays? That he struggles in prayer. That it's not just flippant prayers, just random here and there. It's, it's struggling. He's contending. He's battle, battling. The word here is actually where we get the word agonize. He agonizes in prayer. This is the kind of prayer that a pastor or an elder or all of us should have for one another. Understanding that spiritual warfare, it besets all of us. And that we are all consistently engaged with spiritual warfare. So how vital it is that we're praying for one another. If we really believed in spiritual warfare, would we not contend for one another in prayer? If we really believed it, we would pray. In context with what we saw last week in verses 2 to 6, how clear it is that prayer should be the mark, one of the marks of a Christian life, that we should be about the business of prayer all the time. And so we encourage one another, we comfort one another, we pray for one another. And let me just draw one more characteristic of Christian service from this passage. Verse 16, we read God's word together. We read God's word. And when this letter has been read among you, have it also read in the church of the Laodiceans. This is something that the church does together. We read God's word together. 1 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 13 says, Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. This is something that the church does. This isn't fancy. 
This isn't something that's going to draw the masses to simply open God's word and begin to read it. But this is something that we are called to do. And if we are truly and genuinely sheep, we are going to want to come to God's word and hear it in its purity, read. You know, that's the only time when anything infallible happens within our church setting. That I can certainly get up here and I can ramble and say things that are totally inaccurate. But when we read the word of God, it is God speaking directly to us through his words. Friends, as we've looked at these three or several major thoughts, the kingdom work requires faithfulness, cooperation, and service. It reminds me, as I've mentioned a couple times already, of being involved with team sports. That there's no I in team, is there? And we clearly see this within our text this morning. There is no one person, unless we qualify the Lord as that one person, doing the work alone. But it is a team sport here on earth. Kingdom work is a team sport. But let let me move in a little bit closer in regard to those of you who are here. Let me ask you, how many of you feel as though you're on the team in terms of our church family here? That you're involved, that you're a part, that you're ministering, that you're faithful, that you're in cooperation, and that you're working in service with each other. We certainly do what we can to not exclude people here. This is not a matter of just excluding folks. All are invited to our various events and gatherings, even if you're not a member of the church. There are service opportunities. But it's up to all of you to actively, in your mind, to commit yourself to the team. To being involved, being involved with the church is not a spectator sport. In terms of what we see within the Bible, it is not a spectator sport. I fear so often that people even come to our worship gathering. And instead of being participants in the worship, that we're simply spectators of the worship. We just kind of watch it happen. We just kind of watch the music happen. We just kind of watch the reading of the word happen. We just kind of watch the preaching happen. And we just spectate instead of participate in the worship. Ministry happens in various settings of the congregation during the week. And so often we spectate on that instead of participate. We watch it all happen week in and week out, but we don't involve ourselves. We know or we think that ministry is happening throughout the week, but we don't jump in on it. A man named Bud Wilkinson was the head coach of the Oklahoma Sooners football team years ago, and he was asked about how football had contributed to the health, the physical well-being of America. And this was, of course, before the whole concussion thing came out and all of that. But Wilkinson famously responded that football hadn't gotten America healthy at all. Of course, the person asking the question was shocked at his response. And then Wilkinson went on and said, I define football as 22 men on the field desperately needing rest and 22,000 fans in the stadium desperately needing exercise. In other words, being a spectator of football does not involve you with the activity. It does not involve you as a member of that team. And so if the Patriots, I know I'm bringing them up all the time now, but if the Patriots win this afternoon and I say, we won, we didn't win. They won. But when it comes to our ministry here, when we have successes and when the Lord uses us, is it we as a church family working together, showing up once a week to watch a game, if you will, on Sunday morning, doesn't make you part of the team. And it certainly doesn't make you healthy to sit here and watch it. If you could get healthy by watching football, I would be the fittest person in the world. (laughs) But what does make you spiritually fit? What does make one a part of the action? Getting on the field. 
Getting the uniform on, getting dirty with your teammates in the work of the ministry is vital to your spiritual health. And you know what? It's not even just about your spiritual health. It's about the spiritual health of your brothers and sisters. That as the body of Christ, those parts of the body who may be dormant even this morning, we need you to rise up and to become a part for the health of the body. And so I ask you, are you faithfully working in the kingdom Do you cooperate with one another in that work? And do you serve one another? And thereby, by serving one another, serve the Lord in the work of the ministry. Will you stand with me now? I'd like to close with a song. And oftentimes when there's kind of a a call to action, this is one of the songs that we sing in uh, O Church Arise.